what it starts out when I talk to a, a company at a conference or whatever, and I ask them, you know, what do you guys do? And they said, oh, we're just a general machine shop. And I said, no, you're not. You know? <laughs> I said, you can drill down and find exactly what you're good at. And then, you, you know, once you do it, they need to market it. So that's kind of how it starts. Welcome to the Machine Shop Mastery Podcast, where we uncover the stories behind successful machine shops and their owners. By interviewing current and former shop owners, we dig deep to unveil their secrets of success and the struggles and challenges they've overcome on their paths to building thriving shops. We aim to elevate how important the machining industry is and inspire others by highlighting why owning a shop can be a great vehicle to creating jobs, stimulating the economy, and creating wealth. Here's our host, former machine shop owner himself, Paul Van Meter. Welcome, my friends, to another episode of the Machine Shop Mastery Podcast. I am your host, Paul Van Meter, and I am super excited today to introduce you to a fascinating gentleman. Uh, his name is Ted Toth with Rothenberger North America. Ted's grandfather, father, and uncles started a machine shop in 1947, and he joined the business a few years later, and they grew that business for many decades uh, into a very interesting company that specialized in some very particular niches. And by specializing in those niches, they made their company strategically very valuable for an acquisition for a German company that ultimately did buy them uh, about 10 years ago. And Ted still works there to this day. Uh, Ted shares, of course, the, the amazing journey of having a, a, a multi-generational, multi-decade old machine shop, uh, how they've grown that business, what that transition was like when they sold it, the incredible culture they must have because he explained to me that one of their machinists from many, many years ago, about, about 50 years of employment, had his son, grandson, and great-grandson all join as employees as well. So I can only imagine how wonderful a place it was to work or is to work with that kind of tenure. Uh, we also learn about how they really believe deeply in 6S, that is like 5S with safety added in, uh, and having an impeccably clean shop for both the pride of the employees uh, and customers alike. Uh, so just some really great knowledge from Ted today. Uh, so I'm excited to have you to hear what Ted has to say. Before we get into that episode, I'd love to make the request, if you have found value and enjoyed these episodes, I would love it if you'd go to your favorite podcast platform or more than one and give us up to a five-star rating if you think we've earned that. So thank you again for doing that. It really helps other people find, find the podcast and help share our message about how important machine shops are to the industry. All right, let's go talk with Ted. Hey, Ted, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm great. Thanks, Paul. Well, um, we, were, uh, we, we were talking at the NTMA conference recently. And um, as I learned a little bit more about kind of your situation, I was just more and more intrigued. So I would love for you to start by sharing with the audience uh, who you are, what your shop is, and, and kind of your backstory. Okay. Again, my name is uh, Ted Toth. Uh, I work for Rosenberg North America in Pensacola, New Jersey as a senior technical advisor, which is, we'll get into that a little later. <laughs> but as far as it, our company and my career kind of intertwined because it was a family business. So I can, I can go over that, you know, how it, basically our company started. And yeah. uh, basically in 1947, my uncle, my dad and his two brothers were laid off by RCA peacetime layoffs after World War II. And then they actually, they had a machine shop in the garage. That's one of the things, a couple of machines. That's one of the reasons why RCA kind of let them go. And two weeks later, they called them up and asked them to do work for them. So <laughs> concept. That worked so, out. Uh, so in 1948, we actually got incorporated. They decided to do it as a business. So, and then uh, about 65, my grandfather retired and it was my, it was my, my grandfather and his three sons. And then my grandfather retired, and now it was the three sons took over the business. And it was it was started out as Lewis Totes and Sons, and then when my when my dad and two uncles took it over, it was a uh, Toth Incorporated. So, okay. so they uh, in about '66 is when we first got into NC machines, so Moog Hydro Points. It's a really noisy, low tech machines, but in that day they were you know top of the line. So around '47 is when I got involved with the company. I turned 16. 
And at that point, I had working papers, so I was on the payroll at 16 because I worked wow. on weekends and, and vacations, and sometimes I'd go in, you know, late at night work with my dad for a couple hours. So, and then in 74, he, before, like two days before school started, he flew me out with him to uh, IMTS in 74 to look at Bridgeport had a milling machine with a computer on it, he said. So <laughs> it was the new boss controls that just came out. So that was kind of what got me hooked, really. I mean, I was in the machine shop business a little bit, sweeping floors and stuff like that. What really got me hooked on machine technology is when I visited IMTS in 74 and saw, I mean, we had blades, we had mills, we had a couple of grinders, but to see these big bridge mills and, and uh, you know, planers, uh, uh, you know, different uh, grinders, different types of grinders, big lathes that are big, you know, you can put a car in them. <laughs> sure, yeah. It's opened up my eyes to the different types of, of uh, technology that are out there. Even they even had EDM back then. So it was, a, it was kind of a... Uh, it was an eye-opening experience that really started my life in, in manufacturing. So actually, we bought a machine in 75. I started programming it. And I was still a sophomore in high school. <laughs> so oh, really? we, got, we got the machine in, in the uh, like early June. So I was able to program it and learn how to program and operate it all summer long. And then I would come in on Saturdays or I'd come in at night if there was an issue and help the, the operator that was working on it program it. So, so that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So... Um, in about 78, we got our first uh, Series 2 machines, and we also got our first programming system. Now, I was working full-time at this point okay. in, eight, in, in uh, 78. So um, it was called um, Compact 2. It used to teletype. It was hooked into the phone lines. Really slow, cumbersome process. Mm -hmm. And it took forever to get to program anything. But uh, so, but in 79, we kind of trashed that idea because it was just too costly, and Bridgeport came out with the easy cam. So we were one of the beta sites for Bridgeport. So it was kind of neat. So, and then 80, we got our first machining center, which I was involved with doing that. And then at, at the same time, when, you know, I, when I turned 16, I was also a volunteer fireman. So that my, my dad, my brothers, we were all volunteer firemen. Okay. So in 85, I was assistant chief at the time. And I had to make a, a big decision, you know, to stay with the fire company and put all my time in there or run the company, run Token Cooperative. So... Right. Kind of decided <laughs> that was a turning point in my career to to actually run um, Tothin Incorporated. At that point, my I was helping my dad quote because uh, he had trouble quoting because he didn't know the CNC machines. And but that time we had like five or six CNC machines. So I started doing the quoting and I started giving jobs out. So eventually, he made me general manager in like eighty five, eighty six. So and then my uncle retired in like eighty six, uh, and then in ninety three, my uncle other uncle retired in ninety two. So now it was my dad and his three sons. Okay. And at that point, oh, your brothers were also in the business. <laughs> yeah, I had two brothers involved, my brother Tim and my brother Tom. And uh, so, you know, we, again, it was my dad and his three sons for like two years. And he decided he had a little bit too much. You know, 91 was a big downturn in the business. Mm -hmm. So at that point, he was able to, to give the shares. They were basically worth nothing, you know, because we had a lot of debt and, and not a whole lot of income. So uh, at that point, we took the business over in, in 93. And change okay. the name to the technologies. Okay. So, and then I guess '96 is when we joined the NTMA, where I really learned how to run a business. I mean, we were just machines, oh, wow. right? So, a friend of mine said, "Hey, you need to you need to join the NTMA because they have programs and seminars and webinars on how to run your business." So that's where we got involved. And then my dad retired in 2004. We moved to a different couple of buildings now. We're in the building we moved into 2007. We're currently in now. And then um, 2010 at a trade show, uh, I ran into one of my one of my customers, and they, uh, you know, we got into talking, and I invited him to our shop. At that point, they they said, "Well, we need a manufacturer in the U.S." It was a German-based company. They got all their supplies from Germany, assembled them over here. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so he came in and he said, "I got to get my, I got to get the CEO over here." So the CEO two days later he flew in from Germany. So wow, <laughs> I was excited to see you. Pretty, pretty <laughs> impressive. So, uh, yeah, we had a little, in 2011, they couldn't put a deal together for the, they wanted to buy the business. Um, okay. We, they came to us and, right. and machine shops, you can't, it's tough to sell a machine shop, you know, in this day and age. So, so we were pretty fortunate and we had no fourth generation coming up. Mm. We were a third generation running. We ran it for what, 12, 19 years, I think. Right. So at 20, 2011, they were talking about it. They decided, no, we, we don't have it. We're not making enough money for them. They, you know, they wanted 15 to 20% EBITDA. 
and we were making like 5%, you know, which most machine shops do, we, you know, we we're out to make a living and reinvested it ourselves at home. Sure, so sure. they didn't feel very profitable. So we, we did a, a thing. We actually kind of made up our own little, um, uh, we kind of merged with, with them, kind of like we said with Rosenberg or Tosa. Now Rosenberg could say, well, they had a machine shop that they're working with in the U.S. So they could supply okay. the military yeah. parts partnered. of the military. Yeah. They just partnered at a sort of vendor-client relationship, but yeah. strategically. Okay. Yeah. So we ran that for about a year, and then uh, they got a call one day to come up to see them. And uh, this, the, the CEO was there, Rosenberg or Hans Rosenberger. And he said, we want to buy you. I said, well, we already went through that exercise last year. And I said, well, here's where we left off. He goes, no, your original amount that we started at. So, because I guess they really, the Germans really felt that, that by doing that partnership without them or their approval, that we that we put our, our soul into it and uh, and really helped them out. And they liked that idea. So we basically went over the accountant's heads and said, yeah, these guys are what we need, what we're looking for. So 2012, we made a deal and sold it to them. And uh, yeah, 10 years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, 2017, uh, I, we got done all the, the buyout and I, they still asked me to stay on. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what I was at that point. I was a vice president and they reorganized the plant. The vice presidents were now in charge of business units and the plants were run by general managers. And we already had a general manager. So basically, I, I, uh, they asked me to step down into engineering. So which is what which I, I love. That's my my specialty. <laughs> so that's where the title uh, the, the, the title, uh, you know, uh, what the heck was the title now? Uh, senior technical advisor. <laughs> That's yeah, a title yeah. they gave me just for, for a title. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you really know what you to get call. to, you get to yeah. tinker with toys and play yeah. and make stuff. And you love that. Well, they call me the idea guy. So it's, it's my job to try to do, you know, reduce labor, try to come up with ideas to, uh, to automate stuff. So it's fun. I get to spend their money. So. <laughs> That's not a bad deal. Not a bad deal. Wow. What an amazing story. Um, so when you and your brothers took it over from your father, what approximately what size was the company? We had about 15, maybe 17 employees. Okay. Okay. And in 20, 2012, when we sold it, we had about 35. So we kind of doubled the size of it. Okay. Yep. Now we're at 80, 70 to 80 employees. I don't know. I'm out of management right now, so I don't know. Sure. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to worry about such details. <laughs> wow, and you've so that's that's super fascinating. When um, uh, I'm just when when you came back around, uh, and when they came back to you a year later and said, "Yeah, we'd like to buy you buy you now," had um, had your EBITDA gone up over that year? Uh, no, or actually, not really. We bought some other equipment. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> yeah. see. Realizing we still needed to support these guys, we had to buy some other equipment, some more more Swiss machines that actually allowed us to keep up with the product. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, that actually went up. It went down a little bit uh, as far as right. because of, of the value went down. Uh, sure. But uh, and they actually bought us. They assumed all of our debt too, which was nice. Okay. So it was um, a good good deal for you and your brother. Were your brothers still involved at the time? I won, yeah, they were still involved, but they couldn't carry three of us as as owners. You know. Sure. So, my one brother Tim, he still works for us. Uh, he actually works in Florida, and he's uh, he does he's our uh, estimator or, or senior estimator. Oh, right on. And my brother Tom wasn't able to stay with the company. They you know they couldn't carry all three of us, and he went into he's he's quality control, so he's a quality control manager at a local shop. Okay, so still involved with the business. So. Right, right, okay. Wow, what an interesting story. Um, and so obviously the company's seen a lot of growth since they bought you. Um. So they're investing in new machines and people and processes and all that kind of stuff. That's that's, yeah, correct, that's, yeah. that's wonderful. Um, I took it to a, we took it to a certain level in 2012, and it's nice that they're taking it to the next level. I didn't have the resources to do it to the next level, so yeah. kind of like sometimes you got to cut your ties and, and say, okay, I, I did as best I could, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they're able to take it to the next level. And I'm here to 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 you know help them take it to the next level, and it's uh, it's right. fun, you know. <laughs> seeing where we're going and, uh, and then planning out the next five years is going to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why retire if you can do what you love every day and, and uh, have a nice secure uh, situation there. Well, I'll retire a little bit soon because I'm, I'm coming up to 49 years with the company. So <laughs> I think I'm going to get 50, I'll, 50 years. I'll probably drop back three days a week. So. Okay. Okay. From 60 years, so. <laughs> yeah. I bet. 
Um, well, wow. Super interesting. So, uh, you said you had about a five-year earnout. Is that right? I'd, I'd love for you to just kind of explain as much as you're willing, just kind of what that process was like of having them buy you. Obviously you, it was, it was just you and them, right? You weren't, you weren't entertaining other offers or you weren't sort of out on the market. Um, yeah. Can you just describe a little bit about what that process was like? It's pretty easy. Once we came up with the, uh, with the, the cost and they agreed on it and, and, um, it was just a matter of just splitting up between, we have three brothers and we, you know, I had 34 shares. They both had 33 shares. Uh-huh. And that was basically it. Uh, you know, they gave us a uh, 25% up front and then the rest over uh, five years. So. Okay. Was, uh, and buy out and, and my one brother, Tom, like I said, he was uh, able, wasn't able to stay with the company, but you know, they still gave him the checks every week. So. Right. Every month. And, and um, so how did you decide what you, all wanted in the first place was it just what would sort of set you off comfortably in your future or it was yeah, it a multiple of EBITDA or, or how did you decide it was it was it was an EBITDA yeah multiple EBITDAs but it, even though when they looked at it they said you know it really was we weren't really worth what they wanted and I forget what they actually called it, it was, it's a little extra value they threw in there okay, okay. and uh, I'm not really it wasn't really up on that we had we had a lawyer our family lawyer that was helped us along with that so okay uh, and with that earnout, was that just the the other seventy five percent over five years, or did you have to hit certain certain no. targets? No, that, that, that was the earn. We had we had that was the earnout over five years. We did have a bonus that they gave us uh, over a period of years, but uh, again, right over during that time, we hit the sequestration in fifteen and sixteen. They kind of dropped out. <laughs> you know, mm. the defense uh, defense right. market dropped out. We're, we're pretty heavy in the defense market. So. Right. Okay. Yeah, when I sold my shop, we did get some some amount up front, but then there was some earnouts. But part of those earnouts was was based on hitting revenue targets, mm-hmm. which is tricky because now you're not in the driver's seat; they are. So right. trying to hit those metrics uh, when you're not making all the decisions um, can be a sticky situation. So just advice for those listening: <laughs> if you're going to have an earnout, try to have it be more something that you can control, or if just a fixed a fixed, you know, number of years. So, wow. We didn't, we didn't know any better. It was actually our lawyer set us up with that. So he told him these were our conditions and. Uh, yeah, no, sounds like he advised you well. So good job. Um, all right. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about specifics of what exactly your shop looks like or the shop looks like today, what you make, what you specialize in. You said defense, but um, can you elaborate a little bit more? Yeah, we, we are. Uh, I guess we'd say elevator speech is we manufacture parts for radar systems and satellite antennas and satellite components or defense and aerospace defense communication system or industries rather. So we're ba- we've always been involved with the communications. RCA is our, was our first customer. And basically we're still working. They're still our customer. They change their names a few times, but they're still working on the same facility, mm-hmm. you know, for 75 years. Wow. It's kind of interesting, but so we, we've always been in communications, whether it was, you know, um, and then when RCA split off it in the 60s to radar systems, which was a local facility. And then up north of us, they, they opened up a satellite facility making satellites in the 60s. So that's how we really got involved with the other industries. And we've kind of always stuck to those industries because we knew what they were. We knew them. And we always, you know, looked at their competitors and stuff and uh, found other business that way. So. But we we do manufacture. We right now we're when they purchased us, we were doing about ten percent microwave connectors and ninety percent uh, subcontract work. Okay. And the microwave connectors was supporting them and a few other suppliers. So um, so right now in a, in a various you know one time it was reverse that was twenty percent uh, satellite components and eighty percent microwave connectors. Mm-hmm. This year it's about fifty fifty. Okay. Uh, we got a couple big orders for uh, some an- antennas for satellites, which is really, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a nice program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it fluctuates, but we are, we are a, uh, you know, we're a captive shop. We do, we build our own product for our microwave. Yeah. And then the, we're a subcontractor uh, for the satellite components and electronic chassis and stuff like that. Uh, so so those, those are, um, so you're, so you're partly captive and partly a, a service provider for other companies? Correct. Correct. Okay. Got it. Interesting. And even and, when, when we're captive, we, when they quote us out to other shops. 
Okay, you still got to keep your pencil sharp. Yeah, it's our it's our it's our parent. Our, we call it a parent company, a sister company that uh, designs and assembles a lot of the components. There's some components that they can't sub out to other people because we have proprietary processes. Mm-hmm. So it kind of mm-hmm. keeps us. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why Rosenberger bought us. We do glass and metal seals, and uh, there's only about 20 companies in the U.S. that actually do that. So, so you're machining glass or what? What is it? Machining uh, Kovar material, okay. and we. Fuse that into uh, into we fuse glass beads into cobar material. They're eyelets like. Then there's usually a center conductor in the center mm-hmm. of used for uh, most of the defense the contractors use them on the radar systems because they're very reliable. It's not like a Teflon insulator. Usually, in the, like the back of your television, you have an F an F connector yeah. uh, that has a Teflon connector. Well, these are, we use glass and we fuse the glass together. And sometimes they're called hermetic seals, or we have vacuum and spraying with helium to see if they leak so pretty fancy really, really robust seals yeah and some of the newer ones go down we have five thousand center conductors so pinning through the center is five thousands on some of them really really small <laughs> wow five th- so you're drilling five thousandths holes kind of thing well, well in our fixtures but uh, there's usually a six or seven thousandths hole through the bead so we, okay. we beads from companies that, that make this special uh, glass uh dielectric glass that we use that we fuse and it's kind of an interesting process it doesn't really stick to the metal we have to grow an oxide on the metal and then the, the glass sticks through the to the oxide on the metal that's kind very of, technical yeah, yeah it's, very technical. It's, it's kind of a black art you know <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. be able to figure it out but it it's, it's a fun process we started doing that in like 85 but we were subcontracting it out so it wasn't until 90 90 it was like 2000 that we decided to bring it, bring it in house. So. And did you do that because the, this, it was too challenging to get reliable lead times or quality or just. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it was you know, some of the chassis that we were doing little chassis for the flight chassis. It was taking 20, 30 weeks to get them done to get just a glass. 20 or 30 weeks. Yeah. Whoa. That's a that long great. lead time. It's a lot going until you have to, you have to you know buy the, the hardware and then you got to build the tooling to hold it in place while it goes through an oven. And so we were doing you know we would buy the stuff to make sure it fits and then we would design the fixtures for them because they couldn't hold the accuracy that we were able to hold machining them. Mm. And then you know it was just like it was inevitable. It's like well the only thing we don't do is run them through a furnace. <laughs> so and I've been to other facilities. We we'd used three different suppliers, so I knew the, I knew the process. So, uh, so it was only inevitable for us to ask the, the little of the process. And it was one of our customers also said, you gotta, you gotta reduce your lead time. Right. Yeah. That makes and sense. It was, it's a big gamble for us to, you know, to stick our necks out and then purchase one. Now we, now we have three ovens, three furnaces. So. Yeah. So you, uh, even before you got purchased, you were fairly specialized. Can you talk a little bit about the diversity of the type of work and customers you had? over the years as the company grew from, you know, the earliest years? Well, there's three primary customers. One's in the, the satellite business where we were making antennas and satellite components, some out of titanium. So some bigger stuff basically for, but it was all small quantity. You said it was, it was one of a lot of one of, um, yep. point. Uh, so, and, and some of the quantities are a little higher on some of the stuff, but it was a, it was a unique type of employee needed on staff that in order to handle stuff like that. What I especially sometimes we're working on some, complex mounts and all they would be working a month on one part you know, so, <laughs> so it was early and that's before five axes okay that was five axes it probably cut it back to about a week wow so okay. technology so uh and then so that was a satellite which was like and they don't build a lot of satellites uh well there's newer satellites now gps yeah. they're making 30 of them but over a period of 10 years but the other all the other satellites they would build one or two so you're not right. something you could really get into production However, because we were kind of a niche, we were able to get a little bit higher dollar for them, you know, for doing because it was 100% inspection on them also. Right. So, uh, again, if you talk about, you know, being a a small shop and you're only doing small quantities, well, you you can't do it for free, you know. I mean, a lot of times we expect to do small quantity to get to larger quantities, but in a lot of cases, we we did that many times and never got the larger quantities Mm. for, like, electronic chassis and stuff like that. Right. So, we kind of learned our lessons with that. And, and then, like I said, in, bat, in, two, uh, in 2000 is when we started doing microwave connectors for other companies because we were doing, we were just providing a service of sealing. And then eventually we, had made, we made the connectors and then started selling ourselves. 
And is that, excuse me, is that when the volume started getting larger and you bought like Swiss machines? Because if you're buying Swiss, you must be that's, having a lot of parts to make. Yeah, and, and was it 20, 2009, we actually, our, one of our customers decided to stop building the, the, the connectors that we were making called board-mounted connectors. So we made a deal. We said, well, that's a lot of our business. So we kind of made them a deal that we would, uh, we would license technology for them and, and build them ourselves. So we got that deal going. However, they wouldn't allow us to use their part numbers, which really, really didn't work out because the customer, we'd have to be redesigned and we'd have to get requalified. Oh. So it didn't really work out. And fortunately, it, it, because we were marketing ourselves to be able to make these connectors, is when we, we were at a show in Philadelphia, a microwave show, and we ran into uh, Rosenberger at that show, started doing work for them, and they became our customer and then bought us. So. Got it. Okay. That, wow. That, and then, so that microwave was one business. The uh, other part of the business was uh, recorders, uh, uh, tactical recorders that we did a lot of parts for. Uh, and they, they went up a little higher quantity, but usually no more than like 10 or 15. <laughs> so that was high still quantity. Pretty so low. That's, yeah, that's still pretty low. But in 2009, when, the, when, our custom, when our, one of our customers decided to drop the product line, we, we bought a couple of Swiss machines from them. To continue the, the work on them, so that was our first or introduced the Swiss. Although before that, we actually subcontract most of the Swiss work out. So that kind of got us into Swiss. We still have those machines, but they're used for prototyping. Right, right. So when we were prepping for this, uh, you sent me, or just after the NTMA conference, you sent me um, a document that you had created called "Defining Your Niche" and a whole worksheet around it. And I was blown away that you'd put this level of detail and thought into it. And I'd, I'd love if you'd sort of explain um, why you created it in the first place, what you do with it. It sounds like you, you provide it and give it to other shops to help them. Um, yeah. First, talk about that. Where it started was in 2007, there was a American machinist magazine basically had a top 10 shops. Mm-hmm. And we actually, we actually filled out the survey. It was a benchmark survey. Now it's done by um, Modern Machine Shop. But they, uh, we filled out the survey, and we actually won a top shop in 2007. So uh, when the, the editor came in and he interviewed us, took some pictures, you know, photographs, and then and, and, uh, made a little article. Then uh, the, the next year, it was 2008, in IMTS, he says, hey, could you put a presentation on about your niche shop? Could you put a presentation on how you develop it into a niche shop, which – we didn't, we did it over time. It was like overnight mm-hmm. and, and how you could help other companies, you know, you know make, define their niche. So that's yeah. how the whole process started. So okay. it was in front of the, the theater and IMTS, you know, that was my first real standing up in front of hundred people, you know, <laughs> like a couple hundred people, but it was, uh, and it just grew from there, you know, it mm-hmm. created a couple of different, uh, worksheets to help define, uh, the process and all. So. But. Wow, that's super interesting. I mean, I, I've certainly heard the advice, and and we we uh, we subscribe to it to some degree at our shop, but niche down until it hurts, right? Yeah. That that term, and uh, <clears throat> you know, while and and actually we were talking about this as a, at a conference last week. Um, that seems like on one hand it could be dangerous, but on the other hand, there's a lot of riches in the niches, as also people say. Can you maybe elaborate on your thinking of on, you know, becoming ec- really excellent at a particular niche type of co- type of product, type of company versus pigeonholing yourself and not having a great, you know, big enough market or something like that? It starts out when I talk to a, a company at a conference or whatever, and I ask them, you know, what do you guys do? And they said, oh, we're just a general machine shop. And I said, no, you're not. You know? <laughs> I said, you can drill down and find exactly what you're good at. And then, you know, once you do it, they need to market it. So that's kind of how it starts. You know, everybody has their, their, their it's an 80-20 rule. Everybody, 20% of your product is your most profitable, you know, or, or, or 80, 20% of your, or your products are a pain in the neck. You know? right. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. It could, it could be both sides of the 80-20 rule. So that's what you have to start learning how to weed out. And then, and then once you find out what you're good at, once you find out what industries that, you're, that your customers work in, then you go after their their your customers' competitors. And find out what trade shows they go to. You know you're going to work it. Uh, so that's the other thing about becoming a niche. It's got its pros and cons. I mean, the con is you have less competition, or the pros rather. You have you have less less competition, uh, but it's going to require usually a higher skill level and a little bit more direct uh, marketing. Mm-hmm. And or the con is the reverse of that. You know, it's the uh, 
you, you don't have a lot of marketing uh, right. but it, because it, you're more direct, but it's going to require to re possibly little by little retool the shop into a specific targeted area. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just, it's just, just, it doesn't, it doesn't really happen overnight type of thing. And, sure. uh, and I, I, I think that, you know, most of the large shops have already found their niche. So I would say that, but the smaller shops are the ones that really need the help to really drill down and find what they're good at and then right. market that. And then, you know, you just don't want to go out and say, I, I want to buy five axes just to buy five axes. <laughs> you got to have a need for it. Like, you know, but you don't know until you have it, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's usable. And you got to stick your neck out sometimes for that kind of stuff. Right. But working in different niches, like if, you, if you're in aerospace and you want to do medical, well, they require two different sets of quality standards. You can do it. Some shops are doing it pretty good, but the, the smaller shops are not going to be able to, to go in those areas or go to automotive. You got to kind of pick your niche, yeah. uh, your, your industry, and, and work at that, working in your industry because overlap's okay. Overlap's okay for shops that are more like service oriented, for EDM shops, grinding shops. Hmm. They can do that, they can go across different niches, different industry niches. Yeah, but uh, but manufacturers like machining, you know, milling, turning, uh, it's pretty it's pretty much got to stay within your niche because of quality system industry niche rather. Mm -hmm. So when you are, I'm, I'm looking at your sheet here, right here, um, you have sort of basic industry and customer, and then profit factor, high, medium, low. So do you advise people to kind of analyze the work that they've done over the last year or so? At, at a larger at a larger. Uh, um, foot level of it, not, not down mm -hmm. every part, yeah. but in certain types of parts, you know, you make certain flanges for this type of product line, you know, are you doing well on that one or, uh, okay, you, you might do it at Inconel, you're doing really well at Inconel, you're not doing well at Inconel, depends on the equipment you have. Sure. Uh, so that's, what, yeah, you, you want, you would look at profitability as, you know, which customers are the most profitable, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which industries are the most profitable. And that's where you, that's where you got to find your soft spot, your uh, sweet spot. Yeah, yeah. Do and it's, it's common sense. I mean, you just oh, it totally is. Yeah. 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 And we, at our shop, um, we, we definitely niched down reasonably well. I mean, we had, I'd say we had a couple of different niches, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I think in your, in your sheet here, you know, you definitely can identify maybe your top 10 or, you know, your, your, your main ones. Um, but, uh, yeah. And then I'd, you, you already kind of alluded to this a little bit, but you know, figuring out, you know, who your best customer is in that, in that niche and then who, who their competitors are and then how are you going to reach out directly targeted to those companies? How do you, uh, you mentioned trade shows. Do you have other strategies that you have used to uh, find? Yeah, you, you don't go to the job shop shows. You want to go to the shows like we go to a microwave show because it's a lot of our customers are all the microwaves. I mean, if you go to, a, if you're doing automotive, you go to an automotive show. You know? So you need, again, that's a niche. You got to go to the niche shop, the, the shows that, that you can highlight your product. You might be the only machine shop there in certain mm -hmm. shows. Mm -hmm. That's but, a great idea. Yeah. And do you also do the same thing on your website and such? Uh, the websites we don't have as much control over now as we used to. It's, you know, it's, sure. uh, yeah, they, they let's say the next six months we're working on because they just hired a marketing manager mm -hmm. or director. So yeah. now they're going to start. We're, we have, they are we're a German based company. We have I didn't mention that, but uh, we're we're a German based company, a global company. So we have like twenty seven sites throughout the world. Oh, so wow. We're one of the smaller ones. Uh, so I think they have almost 20,000 employees. Rosenberger has like 20,000 employees globally. I mean, they have plants in, in, uh, in China, plants in India, you know, uh, not, not a whole lot of plants that actually manufacture stuff. Most of them are assembly plants mm -hmm. and they're really big in automotive. Uh, they build the big cables for the automotive batteries and, and even the sensors and stuff like that. So we don't get involved with that. We get, we're sure. basically fence industry in the U S to support. So, okay. And do you have any, um, I mean, how do you, would you, if there's any rules of thumb of sort of the profitability of shops that really have defined and really executed on their niche versus more general, any rules of thumb there? Well, EBITDA is a big number, especially if you look at the benchmarking from, uh, from the modern machine shop, mm -hmm. most of the, the top shops are 15% or higher. Okay. Where most of the machine shops that I, I know around here are usually around 5%, you know, and is that because they're more general and they haven't found their niche? They're more general, and you know, they, they uh, smaller machine shops. I think are, are 
a little bit, they invest a little bit more as far as the, their own money into mm-hmm. the, you know, uh, but I, I, don't, I don't really know the reason why it's more like they're out to make a living, not a killing. <laughs> I mean, you can't make a killing as a large company. Like you said, you, you usually bring your prices up until it hurts. Then you got to back off. Um, but the, you know, there's a lot of stuff like just, you know, knowing your customer, the customer's product. So you, in the micro industry, we learned the terminology. You talk about, you know, the Ohm's resistance and, and, you know, the different terminology that we use when we're talking to the customer. So they, you know, the engineers love that. They understand what you're, what, you know, you can interact with them a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So that's, that you become an asset to the company when you can start being part of their engineering department. And that's yeah. what we, that's how we always went through. And we've never really had salespeople in our business in 75 years. Right. We always, we always had uh, engineering or model shop contracts with some of our uh, customers. We did a lot of the model work. And then that's what we were able to, to get into doing higher production. Or if the engineer left, he would say, hey, I work with these guys. They're pretty good. Mm-hmm. So that's how we got in the door uh, through engineering. Mm-hmm. And yeah. a lot of shops do that. Uh, but we were pretty successful over, over the years. And we still are for today. Uh, how did you it. first get good at that? Did you Were you offering quick lead times and you just happened to get into these customers that were in this kind of niche? And then you just really provided those engineers with great, great service, quick lead times, or? I think it really work. started back in the nineties when we hired, um, again, uh, one of the RCA divisions shut down their machine shop and we hired nine of their guys. Mm. So we just, and then we became their job shop, their, their yeah. uh, prototype shop. But even before then we had, it was another facility up in Princeton that we, we did a lot of engineering work for. And they would, they would have drivers drop the drawings off every day and they just they want the parts as fast as they can get it because they were it was to support their manufacturing. So, right. uh, it just it just was, we were set to do small quantity and we had to turn around. When we had the, the the top groups, the top employees that were able to turn that stuff around. And way back, I remember it was kind of interesting. A lot of our we had like six or seven employees. They had their own mill and lathe, and they had like a little a shop and shop inside of a shop. You know, they did the job from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Right. So they had their own, you know, they were assigned there. They had their own little area, little box area. They had their own mill and lathe in their workbench. Right. So yeah. for years uh, we had them and then, you know, we don't do that anymore, but, but we do have the, the key, some key employees that we use. We used to have the 18 uh, years ago that we would throw on a hot job, you know, okay. the customers and a lot of those guys retired. So we haven't really, they haven't really backfilled. I mean, found the, the newer guys that do that. And that's, that is a problem. You know, we we do a lot of mentoring with the uh, new employees. Yeah. You can't find them in our area. We're just, they're stealing from each other. We don't do that. So, Right. Yeah. I think that's pretty universal, at least in North America today, not being able to find enough skilled machinists. You but mentioned I- this A team. So <laughs> was that sort of like a group of journeyman level machinists that programmers that were just super excellent? Yeah, and even in our case, a lot of our, our machinists actually program their own jobs still today. Right. I would say eighty percent of the machinists do their own program. Okay. So yeah, that's so they were more rounded and we, they were called model makers at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, they were they were the top of the top. Yeah. And, uh, and we had quite a few. I mean, and, and some of the, our model makers worked first for fifty years. So wow. <laughs> that's a long <laughs> we had, time. And one uh, model maker that his uh, we had his son, grandson, his son, yeah, his son, grandson, and great grandson worked for us. So. Holy smokes. Wow. So let's, let's pivot a little bit and talk about culture and talk about building a company that four generations want to work for. Mm-hmm. How do you, how did you do that? What was the company like? Well, it was more employee oriented. I mean, you know, we it was like a family, like most small shops are. Mm-hmm. And still today we have a lot of, a lot of that aspects of it, but we have we always had flexible work schedules. I mean, yeah, we, we opened up at five o'clock or six thirty in the morning. I'm not even sure when they opened this now, but, and then we have flex hours. So it's a little bit easier for a lot of the employees to do it. And even back when I was younger at 12 o'clock, of course we used to work 12 hour days, 14 hour days. Sometimes mm-hmm. uh, at noon, they would shut the lights out. The guys would pull out cots and sleep for half an hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's like the siesta time. So <laughs> I never got into that, but it was a lot of the old, and I think we still have one employee that does that still uh, pulls out the cots. So. But so, it's, so flexible work hours. So does that also mean like your kid has a has a soccer game and it's okay if you take the afternoon off and just go do that? 
Yep. Yep. As long as you put your hours in for the week. So right. and we have a second shift so they can, you know, a little skeleton second shift. So if they got to work longer, they can. So. Sure. Sure. A little tougher than some of the production machines to keep them running, but. Uh, yeah. So they, when they, you, when you had that A team and each, each person had their own area and they were, you know, programming and machining everything themselves. Um, I would imagine sometimes they're, need to take some flexible family time conflicted with the deadlines of the product. How, how did you balance those things? Well, it, it's always a, a t- tough balance on there, you know, <laughs> and, and a lot of, you know, you had to give in because you just can especially if they're working on a job, you know, hot job or a really tense job. And then they, they just leave because you don't ask questions, just let them go. You know, right. <laughs> and that's the same same when they have a family issue and we're understanding, you know, as long as we can what do we got to do to get the job out? Mm-hmm. So you can know, you work later tomorrow, uh, the next right. day. So, uh, right. Pretty good. I mean, if you if you give a little bit, they'll give a little bit. So right. if you're too rigid, they're going to say, you know, oh, I, I can't work over, you know. Sure. So so again, it depends on how you treat them. You know, treat them like you wouldn't be treated in a lot of cases. And and, and our, you know, we have an open door policy even till today. We you know, our, our general managers has an open door policy. Anybody can come in and talk to him about whatever. And he also has with the key employees. He has weekly, uh, monthly exchanges where he sits down. It's a two-way, you know, two-way conversation. And they're only for 15, 20 minutes, you know. What do you feel about the company? How do you, you know, direction of the company? Do you like that? Or do you have any suggestions? Or So it's, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's nice to be able to have that open communication. Is that a one-on-one meeting with each employee or is that a, a yeah, group? One for the key employees. And then a lot of the key employees have one-on-one with their, like, their leads. Okay. So, okay. Yep. So you do one-on-ones. Wonderful. Yeah. We've always thought that's a really important thing to do. So you do those monthly? Sounds like. uh, I think the, the key employees are done monthly, but the other, you know, where you have a, a, a manager of a, like the milling mm-hmm. department, he doesn't have enough. He can't do them monthly. So right. <laughs> usually quarterly. Okay. okay. That's too many people to do. He wouldn't be, have time to do anything else. So, so f- flexible work, uh, staying connected in communication with one-on-ones. Um, those are some good ones that can't, explain entirely why you have three or four generations working for you well, a clean work environment with modern equipment i mean that's uh like i said we you know we had you had to get the employees to stay like retention yep. retention that's one of the big things we do you know they have the you know, Rosenberger likes technology they like to to work with the latest technology that's out there um it's a nice clean shop uh that's part of the success and tma success uh, program that we run in here I mean, I can walk around in, in, the, in the summertime without shoes on in the shop and not get chips on my feet. So that's how clean it is. And the guys take pride from that. And we, uh, we, we weren't always like that. It was only like 2007 when we moved into a new facility. I, visit, I visited a few other shops through NTMA tours. And I said, I want to be like that. I want to be, you know, I want to be able to have, you know, the place not smell or look like a machine shop. And we have drop ceilings and tiled floors. Uh, so it's a, it's a very clean environment. The guys keep it clean because, you know, you know they respect it. Uh, if, they have, if you give them a clean environment, they'll keep it clean. And it's nice to come to work every day with it in a clean environment. So. Yeah, for sure. And you did you sent me some pictures of the facility. And, uh, yeah, exceptionally gorgeous facility. Um, I, I mean, we're, we're never done the 6S or 5S. Yeah, let's, let's talk about 6S. Um, and this, and, and I, I didn't even know NTMA ran a success thing. Can, can you elaborate on, on what that program yeah, is? And that started in 2007. Uh, I was the chairman or the team leader of the technology team. And we were uh, asked by Harry Moser. We worked at, uh, uh, where do you work at GF at the time? Or was it, uh, it's the name of the company. It's mm-hmm. a house in Switzerland. Yep. So he, he, he brought a bunch of apprentices over to Switzerland took him through some shops over there and he came back and said, now oh, we got to do something to bring our shops up to the level like the Swiss shops are. Mm-hmm. So that, so as a, the team leader, we developed a, a team to put together to say, you know, we were doing a 5S and then we put safety in there because NT made a safety program. Right. So we called it 6S. So we basically developed an audit, you know, and, and, uh, and then some other, if you go on the team website, it's free for anybody. Uh, you, you can do the audit. There's, there's examples of the uh, what a 6X shop is, and they were from 2007, and so they're our shop in 2007. So because uh, I, I used ours as the you know the basis for it. Right. Uh, so and there's a whole whole process on how to develop into a 6X shop. You know, 
on mm-hmm. each one of the uh, it's been a while so which all the successes are yes. and now we actually we actually preach a seventh s now because of uh itar so security. now we say security is a seventh s yes yes yeah Very but good. Uh, yeah i think that's one of the things we need to do in order to bring our our all the shops up a level and, and to get employees if, you know if you're if you're like if we brought employees to our old shop that we had you know, back in 2005 um it, it was it was a garage shop. <laughs> it was a five thousand square foot garage, and it looked like it was you know forty years old, so it kind of looked like it. Right. And it, it was it wasn't very impressive, and right. and it wasn't even, even to bring engineers through and all. It wasn't very impressive. So okay. now you know we don't have to we don't have to clean the place, and we have visitors come. It's always clean. So you know a lot of times you had to go and shop. Oh, we got a customer coming. Stop. Clean everything up. Yeah. Well, we don't have to do that. So yeah. it's always how. I, I think this is a topic near and dear to many people's hearts and, and is, is an aspirational thing that they actually have a hard time getting to the level that they want. How did you make that transition from the garage shop to a super clean success facility? Well, we, like I mentioned that a little earlier, but we, we actually moved to 97. We, we grew out of, we needed two more CNC machines. We didn't have room for them. So we broke up, broke off our production and moved it to another building. Okay. And uh, and then that moved to another building, and so we moved. Up, and then our, again, the shop was too small, so we decided to move that to another building. So now we're working out of two sides of a new building, and it still was very cumbersome. Mm-hmm. So it was a two thousand in the end of two thousand six. We said we got you know we got to do something. So uh, the, well, the, it, the the building, the landlord became a slumlord in a sense. You know, the roof was leaking. We we actually had a machine. Uh, inside the electrical park, filled it with water because over the weekend the roof leaked and we, there was nobody there. So we blow boards out on the machine. So it's getting to the point we had to do something. So uh, around the corner from the building we were leasing, uh, building became available and we purchased it in the end of 2006. Okay. And, and then again, from going to all these shops, uh, you know, uh, some of them were medical shops. So I said, well, what do we want the place to look like? And so we wanted it to be nice and clean, uh, open, clean. And that's how, and that's, that was our inspiration. And uh, it's actually, you know, it gets better every year. Mm-hmm. So, so I, so I understand the facility move as kind of a, a tipping point, if you will. Um, but you had, you had team members that were accustomed to, you know, sweeping up most of the chips, but not all the chips. And when you had a coolant spill, you get most of it, but it's okay if there's some left under the, the machine or whatever. How did you go from that being the norm to, all right, you know, that is no longer how we're going to have the shop. Did, was there a lot of buy-in? Did you have pushback? Did you uh, have to... I think once they moved in and saw how clean it was, you know, and okay. plus at the same time, we, we were about, I guess, a little over 35 employees and we hired a part-time maintenance person, which made a big difference. So you didn't have to worry about, they just swept them up into a pile and somebody else would pick them up. Got it. <laughs> so, so that helped a little bit. I think that we gave them a clean space and we told them we need to keep clean. And we did, we also, at that point, we were doing 6S, 2007. So we, we had a couple classes on what 6S is about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you can't find it in 30 seconds, it's not designed great. It's, just, it's, a, it's a not just a clean thing. It's a lean process. Yeah. And if you go yeah. through our plant, we have also, every, just about every machine has a, a toolbox or a tool area that it has the foam boards. Right. We used to use whiteboards, but now we're switching to foam boards. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah. I mean, it's, it's also like I mentioned, we bring customers through, we bring engineers come in. Uh, it's, 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 it's a, it's a selling feature. It's mm-hmm. a part of sales. Oh, you know, yeah. when you bring something through, it's like, wow, you know, I, I'm doing satellite components. So we, this is a perfect facility to do satellite components. Mm-hmm. But it's nice, clean, organized, and especially like quality control. I mean, we've always been, uh, I would say 45208 was the old spec. It's not, it's AS9100 now. Yep. Uh, we've always kept up with the specs because we had to. We were, we were doing defense work and, and aerospace or aero, more space in aerospace. We don't really do any aero part of aerospace. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. We do make yeah. connectors that go on the, the on the radar systems for the jet fighters and stuff like that. That's about all we do. Okay. But uh, so you mentioned uh, some of those uh, sort of older journeyman level that worked for you for decades. How are you? Uh, dealing with community engagement and recruiting today and training and, and uh, trying to upskill people. It's tough. I mean, uh, uh, we're competing against, 
you know, we, we bring people in from, we have a big assembly department and we bring people in at $16 an hour that don't have any skills. And, but we can, uh, Home Depot is $16 an hour. We had this uh, fast food or Wawa's at ours, but like, you know, like the Circle K's or whatever, they're $16 an hour. Right. So you know, we're competing with all these retail stores for the entry level person. Right difficult to do it and so you got to get them hooked you got you got to find somebody who wants to work with their hands we usually ask what hobbies they have you get you get a kid that wants work that works on his car you know you can probably get them hooked right but uh it's it's tough these days. we go through the schools we uh we work with the community colleges the uh they have a couple programs that are under underemployed or unemployed mm-hmm. uh, but most of those people don't want to work anyhow so it's uh, we've tried a couple of them but we haven't been very successful mm-hmm. um but we do have we do work with the community colleges. So we have a lot of online courses that we use. Um, we do, we basically do on, on on the job training, and through either NTMA or our community college has one through. Uh, what the other one is uh, Toying U. They use okay. a part of Toying U. I'm trying to get them to switch over to NTMA U. Right. Yeah. But I developed that program in 2010. So, uh, you know, I'm actually I, I I love working with the with the schools, going in there talking to them. But now I feel like I shouldn't be doing that. I need to get younger guys to do that. You know, oh, sure. <laughs> old guy come in and talk Pass. about grades. Yeah, you need. I need to get some twenty year olds to come in there and, and talk. And it was just kind of funny because back in two thousand, we had a twenty year old that, that uh, we had a meeting, and the president of the NTMA uh, was. We had a, it was meeting at a trade local trade show, and so he he called uh, Jason up in front of the whole group and and talking to him. You know, how are you doing? You know, what are you doing? And he says, what truck do you drive? And he had like a brand new truck, whatever. And he was like 20 years old. So we, we sent him to school to uh, to, to learn uh, in, integrated manufacturing. And they also learned some PLCs and stuff like that. So in like two years, he left us and went to went to a couple of different companies. Now he's my boss. So oh, really? <laughs> we hired him back three years ago. And now he's the assistant, the general manager okay. and the operations manager. So it's kind of fun. He was my apprentice back in 2000. And now I he's my uh, boss and, you know, it's good for him. You know, I mean, he's, he's did a good job. I keep him on his toes now. <laughs> That's so. fantastic. Awesome. Um, what, uh, um, if you could describe some of the m- most memorable experiences from owning your shop, whether there was the, the highest highs or some of the lowest lows, um, just most memorable. Well, the highest highs are anytime you, you bring some, some kids through and you tell them what you do mm. or, you know, or I have a nephew or niece that comes in and say, Hey, I got to do a school project, you know, and I give them some parts, you know, here's the, here's the housing. This is a, the backpack radio for the, sh- the astronauts on the shuttle, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> here's, here's, here's an antenna shaft. It's sister shaft is sitting on Mars, you That's know, so cool. <laughs> here's some, here's some, uh, I guess, resistor housings we had. Uh, these are, these are out of the solar system. They're on the Voyager, you know? So, <laughs> wow. so it's kind of, it's kind of interesting, you know, it's, it's neat to see that, uh, that when you bring to the, the kids eyes and they say, wow, you know, they don't know where this stuff is actually being made mm-hmm. and to see that we, so we have a list of different, or different stuff in our trophy case that we give to when the kids come and say, yeah, this part like this is sitting on Mars. We have a picture of, of Mars and you can see the antenna shaft sitting right in the front of the middle of the picture, which is kind of cool. So, when you have kids come on tours, you get you send them with a sheet showing the parts and no, where... no, they're in our trophy case basically. So. Okay, okay. I mean, I wish we had more kids. We haven't done it in the last couple of years. Service we're COVID and all that. Yeah, yeah, we're just we're distressed also right now with that. Not enough people to do it. So this year we didn't do the uh, uh, the manufacturing day, which is and then the last two years we didn't because of COVID. So we got to get back onto it again. Right. But, uh, you know, the, the other wins is, you know, anytime we, we bring a, a customer through and you're proud of when you bring people through the shop is what you actually manufacture. You know, everybody's proud. And we like that. We like to ask the employee, what are you working on? You know, and they, they pretty much know where it goes. Sometimes they know where it goes. Right. Sometimes we're not allowed to know where the part goes. Yeah. And, and we do that, too. We come up with at least, uh, I think last year or two years ago, we developed a power presentation of where our parts, parts we've manufactured and where they actually go. Mm. A lot of our employees don't know where our parts go. So. so that was that was an internal presentation mostly. Internal presentation, yeah. Right. So, and, and that's uh, I guess we can incorporate that into it's a long presentation. It was like twenty minutes, <laughs> but we can incorporate some of that into into the uh, manufacturing days in the future. So yeah, it's, it's kind of neat. 
I mean, to, to see where, where our parts go. Mm-hmm. And some of the, the uh, I mean, the highlight also was, was selling the business and, and seeing Rosenberger take it to the next level. Cause I never yeah. would have been able to even come close to what they, they were, would have, what they did actually and where they're going, you know, the next five years is what they're looking for. Sure. Uh, and, and I think some of the, 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 the bad things or the worst things that actually happened is if I didn't sell it in 2012 during the uh, 2015 and 16, the defense sequestrations, we lost half of our business. I don't oh, know really? if I would have, I don't know if I would have been able to carry through it. Wow. Because they had, you know, they had deeper pockets and sure. defense market wasn't a big part of theirs. We were able to, you know, we had to make cuts and all cut the hours back and stuff like that, but we were able to slide through it without the worry of having to go out of business, mm-hmm. you know, and we pulled through and we, we just got stronger. I mean, anytime, anytime you get the lows, you always wind up being stronger. It always takes it off even higher. Yeah. I mean, I've been through slows in the 90, 91, 80, 80, 81, it seems like 2001 with the uh, 9-11. Mm-hmm. These were all real s- slow periods that happened. And, and you, always, you always come back stronger. And it weeds out a lot of the companies, too. So if you can hang in there through a low, <laughs> yeah. you know you're yeah. going you know to be a little stronger when you come out of it. So before they bought you and you guys were on your own, how did you handle going through those lows? Uh, I went months without pay. Yeah. Like me and my two brothers. I mean, we, we, we would take, we would take loans out to be able to carry the payroll sometimes knowing that, you know, things were going to pick up. Right. And uh, so, I mean, that, that's what people don't understand. A lot of the employees don't understand about small businesses, the risks that they have to take, keep it going. And in years that weren't great, great, we would still take a small loan at the end of the year to give bonuses. Really? Because all the employees look forward to the bonus at the end of the year. Yeah. So, and they would work it off the rest of the year. But it's uh Wow, you get a loan to give bonuses. That is, that, that's, yeah. I mean, they don't do it. I don't know what they do nowadays because I'm not sure. involved. But this is when, when I ran the company back. In. Yeah. No, that speaks. Uh, I mean, you know, I was asking what, what you do to have three or four generations work for you. And the fact that you're taking out loans to give bonuses, um, that says a lot. So, wow. Yeah, a lot of employees ended, and I mean, they, they, we have, we we're always open with the employees. You know that you know things aren't doing, and they knew because the hours are cut back and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them re, 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 relied on that year end, but it wasn't much. Sure. You know, it was a week's pay or something like that. But it was a yeah. and still we take out small loans in order to be able to carry it because we didn't have the money in the bank to pay it. Right. But you know, in two or three months, we'd pay that off. So it wasn't wasn't like it was a high risk, but. Just more of a cash flow thing, being able to yeah, afford yeah. to have it to give it. Yeah, it's always that way. Cash flow always drops off the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Wow, that's some good stuff right there. Um, so, I'm I'd, as we kind of start to look at wrapping up, I'd love to hear about um, just your outlook on the machining sector in in North America right now, and what shops should be doing to make sure they're leveraging that and succeeding automation that's the big thing even when i had imts this year everybody's doing automation uh, i mean we're having trouble doing it here because our parts are so small but we insert our secondary operations or our value added operations that we do are not machine related we do a lot of fixturing a lot of palletizing mm-hmm. uh, from one operation to another so with less handling we put a little 100 200 parts on a pallet Go from one, you know, pallets are six inches square. So you can see how small our parts are in some yeah. of these <laughs> our microwave connectors. Uh-huh. But uh, but that's you have to, you have to start draw, drawing some of the labor out of it as far as you know, uh, and you can do that through automation very easily. But if you have the right product, mm-hmm. and you also got to look at the right uh, right machines. We weren't looking too far. We were we actually bought a five-axis machine uh, because we we're doing a lot of op- we do five or six or eight operations on these complex uh, brackets to hold the uh, thrusters on satellites. Okay. So, um, so there, and you do them in a lot of two axis machines or two and a half axis. You have a lot of little operations on there. So we bought sure. a five axis to do that, but we didn't realize that in the future, we would need to have air through the spindle to open and close the collar. So just that in itself to upgrade that is like 30 grand. <laughs> mm. So we will eventually do it on, on our machine because we're starting to see more production on that. Right. Uh, so that we can, we can add a power changer to it, but you need every piece of equipment you buy today. And we do, we have to make sure everything has four or five axis capabilities. Sure. Uh, you need to look to make sure that you can have automation in it. I think every piece of equipment you buy. Right. Uh, 
and, and automation can be many different ways. I mean, we, we, we took a, a simple thing of the, we actually take microwave connectors and they're gold plate and we dip them in solder and snap off the solder to get, uh, to get the solder off. It's called the pre-tinning. So they, it, it takes the gold off of it. So when it adheres to the solder to the circuit board, that has a, the joint doesn't have gold embrittlement in it. Hmm. So uh, it's okay when you're doing 50, 100 pieces, but we, you know, we get order for 50,000 pieces. Oh, wow. So you do some really high volumes now. Yeah. So it took me about a year and a half to develop a problem. We found a machine that we could use and we modified it. And uh, now we can do, uh, I guess it's almost uh, 10, 15 seconds apart. And it's fully automatic. We palletize 200 parts on there and just walk away. And 20 minutes or 40 minutes later, the machine's done. And it's uh, impressive. And we we're now we just, uh, next month, we should get our third machine in. So, and, and that's what, you know, we took it from, when you, especially when you have a, a five or $6 part and you're taking a dollar 50 off of it, mm-hmm. you know, it's not so much that we're, we're selling it to the customer cheaper. Well, we are, we're, right. we're not making as much money on it, but the thing is it's more of a value added thing. So if we can compete with somebody, if somebody's adding a dollar 50 to it, we're only adding 25 cents to it. Right. You know, it, we were guaranteed the contract. Sure. Yeah. So it's more of a value added. And then even packaging, we do the same thing with packaging that it's put on a vibe table. It vibrates into a pallet. We put them on a, a machine that actually loads it into a tape and reel that are used for um, place and pick machines. Mm-hmm. And uh, it does about 2,000 parts an hour. Again, without anybody standing there putting them in a hole. Right. So, so again, these are small automations on our value added services that we've done. Right. You know? And we're, we're always looking to do more, you know, and that's my job. Right. <laughs> a roundabout way is uh, I come up with all these ideas and, and just to speed things up to automate things. And so, one of the, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, one last thing I want to say one of my one of my dad's uh, favorite sayings. He said, "We never lost money on a job we didn't take." You know, so that's it. it sometimes you got to be a risk, you know, to take a job, but. If you know it's going to be a loser job, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be taking. And so many companies do that. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we had a company just recently that we do a specialized paint, uh, a primer. So they sent us the part for the primer. And we said, you know, realize that this is going to be $30 to paint this part because the primer is like, it's like, it's like $4,500 a gallon. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's an ESD paint, which is a, which right. is a, a and we have to adjust the, this receptivity on it too. Wow. So he said, you know, he goes, well, I'm only getting $30 for this part. So that's why he got the part. You know, you got to research it. You got to research it. So. Mm. Wow. So, yeah. That's lucky they were able to go back to the customer and got more money for it. But, sure. Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing is the same with inch. You can't be everything to everyone. Yep. Yeah. And, and be as proud as you do of what you don't do is what you do. That's, mm-hmm. that's Steve jobs. He said, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Be as proud of what you don't do as what you do do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good advice. Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, well, Ted, uh, thank you for sharing uh, just incredible story. What, what, I mean, from the forties all the way up till today, that's just, it's amazing. So uh, yeah. Congratulations to you, your family and everyone that's been involved in your success over the years. Yeah, that's, that's truly it's been remarkable. Real, it's real fun and it's still fun. That's why I like, enjoy coming to work every day. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess one last thing before we say goodbye, um, as you're said, you're looking to, you know, start cutting back your, your days. Um, how are you making sure that, that, um, that next technical advisor is trained up enough to step into your shoes as best they can? We, they just hired a, in January, she's been here almost a year, a, uh, an engineer right out of college, a mechanical engineer, Leia. Uh, and then we have another fellow, his mom works here, and he's been working here off and on for a couple of years. He's going to Villanova. He's in his last year of engineering. So now we have, we have two, they're not even engineers, they're full-time engineers that we're, we're training. Mm-hmm. So we ha- I have another engineer, hermetics engineer that I work with, Mike, he's 62, I think, somewhere around there. So he's going to be looking to retire in the next couple of years. So now we have, which is Rosenberg is good on, you know, like they hired Jason to, to eventually Joel's going to retire. Joel's our general manager. Eventually he's going to retire. So Jason eventually will have a couple of years to get, to get the knowledge under his belt. And the same now they hired these two young engineers that we're working with and we, we they're, they're, we're training them every day. Uh, 
we do a lot of training PowerPoints and then they add actually, they update, I do a lot of PowerPoints and then they take the PowerPoints and add embed videos to them. So oh, nice. they make them even better. So anything, you know, they're just, they're just sponges. It's, it's great working with, it makes me feel younger too. It's great working with, you know, young kids, Yeah. <laughs> but they're, uh, but they're really good. They're really sponges and uh, they're really enthused. I mean, sometimes we got to hold them back too much because they're, you know, they get so much energy. Mm-hmm. They want to do this. They want to do that. They want to learn. They, they eventually they're going to learn machining too, but you know, because it's, it's a shame. A lot of these the colleges, universities, actually, right, they don't right. teach machining. I mean, how can how can a manufacturing engineer or mechanical engineer design parts when they don't know how to be made? <laughs> sure. So, so that's going to make these guys a lot better. And that's different from myself. I started as a machinist, moved up to a pseudo engineer. Mm. But, uh, but, you know, that's what we're, we're going to try to make sure that these two have the knowledge of, of machining too. Besides the knowledge of, they're doing most of the stuff they're doing now is the, the assembly, uh, designing right. fixtures, designing uh, pallets that we use through the oven, right. designing uh, uh, molds. We, we do some silicone molding so we can hold parts through different processes, pick parts up and stuff like that. Oh, wow. So they're designing a lot of those things. So then we, we have a 3D printer now that they're using a lot, an, an SLA. So they're doing a lot of small, do a lot of small 3D printing. So. They're really enthused on that. Now that she's going to lay once again, she, I want a robot. I want a robot. <laughs> so we're going to get one eventually. But I so said, when they have one, they can pick up a 9,000th pin. We'll get one, you know. <laughs> so, wow. Well, sounds like a winning strategy. So that's, that's, that's yeah. great. I'm sure Rosenberg is good at cross training and, and looking, looking down the road and say, you know, we, we get, I guess they call it uh, exit strategy in a sense, but sure. It's, uh, you know, who are we going to get, you know, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, you know, so I got to take all my knowledge out of my head and put it down. It's, it's fun doing that. Yeah. Yeah, how do you teach somebody that, you know, what I did five or six years ago, how I came up with this concept to, to tend these parts, right. you know, where, and basically it was just seeing a video online of something similar. And I said, mm-hmm. we, this is great, but we need, we need to improve, even get it faster than that. Right. So you get, you, you know, so I have to teach these guys how to do that, how to, how to look, uh, look on the internet. I'm always on the internet. Look on the internet, look at the YouTube videos of different subjects. We're looking at a lot of laser right now because parts are getting smaller. Yep. You know, if you really obliterate the material instead of wasting a you know, 5,000 diver end mill. You know, so, <laughs> uh, so these are different, uh, different things we're looking at down the road. Is, is in some of our business, everything's getting smaller. Yeah. Said, so, uh, you know, make using 5,000 pins. And sure. Where's it going to go from here? Yeah. Smaller and lighter. And yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Ted, thank you again so much. This has been super fun. I appreciate you sharing all your wisdom. Um, I will definitely make sure there are links to the NTMA uh, 6S link. Um, Make sure that people can access that if they want to. And um, And they they can just send me an email if they want. Do you mind if we just post it on our site or do do you want to do you want to share it out? I got approval from uh, Rosenberger's good on helping other shops out and also. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, we'll make sure there's links on our website to uh, to those those PDFs and such. Yeah. Right, Ted. The industry, you know, that's what we all and that's what's good about the NTMA. We don't yeah. have any, you know, we we are always talking, we're always mentoring each other. Yes. So, you know, I, I I love giving back. I love helping small shops. Yeah, me too. We have that in common. Yeah, and I agree. The NTMA is just yeah, plug for the NTMA. It's just such a great organization. So. All right, Ted. Well, thank you again, sir. Really appreciate your time today. And uh, we'll talk to you again, probably at the next NTMA meeting. Yeah, sure. Arizona. Yeah. Great. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Machine Shop Mastery Podcast. We hope you learned something that inspires you on your journey. You can find more episodes and information over on our website, machineshopmastery.com. There, you can also apply or nominate someone to be a guest on the show. We'll see you on the next episode. Until then, keep those spindles turning.